This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Maureen Routh. And today I'm talking with Sally Blundell about that fascinating new house museum, Raven's Car, and the book she's written about it. And Ruth talks to Rebecca Bella, a counsellor and illustrator. Rebecca Bella is a qualified counsellor, mindfulness coach and author of bestsellers Note to Self and Note to Self Journal. And now she has written Words of Comfort. She's an illustrator, a wife, a mother and, and the creator of popular Instagram community Journey to Wellness. And her roles vary from youth work, brief intervention services and anxiety coaching to group work, a busy life. It is. It does keep me busy, and um, on top of having a toddler, it, it certainly can feel a bit hectic at times, but I absolutely love it. Well, your new book, Words of Comfort, How to Find Hope, how did you go about putting this together? Because I just have to say to our audience out there, you have to see this book. You have to buy it or get it from a library because it's um, the illustrations that mean so much as the words. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it was such a wonderful kind of cathartic book to create. It's, um, you know, all about the many different forms of grief. Um, and I'd had a lot of people coming to me you know, over the past two years especially, with a lot of different kinds of grief. And I thought, you know, I really need to create something for them. Um, and then in the middle of creating it, um, I went through three quite big sort of losses um, myself. So it was sort of a process for me as well as, um, you know, a process of creating a, a resource in a book. So you've got a, an illustration and they look, it looks, when I first glanced at it, I thought this was for children, but it's for all ages, isn't it? it yeah, it's funny. I think the nature of the illustration it might make you think it's for children initially, but um, most of the content and the words are really for adults. But what I have um, had in the way of feedback has been people saying, I use this book with my you know, with my children or I've given it to a teenager. So it, because of the illustration, I think it's sort of translated across all ages. It speaks to you in a child in a way. And they're delightful. They're absolutely divine. You know, they're Thank just gorgeous, you. the illustrations. I mean, I just have to open it at any page and, and uh, you know, I look at the one trying to contain grief is like trying to put a tornado in a jar and there's this little boy <laughs> with a rope in the jar, wearing around. Uh, they're so expressive. So thank yeah. you for doing that. But that is a major part. of. I haven't opened a book on grief that has had this sort of treatment with these illustrations. So that's that to me is yeah. a big plus for your book. Um, you've broken it into three parts. How did you go about that? So the first chapter is called Going Through It. Um, and it's really just the... It's sort of holding up a mirror to the experience of loss and grief, trying to just validate and normalise anything and everything that you might be feeling while you're grieving, um, including letting people know that grief isn't just about you know losing someone. 
but it can be about being, you know, having an illness or it could be a job loss or a big life change. Um, you know, it could be a financial thing. Um, so there's so many different reasons we grieve. And, and then, how, how do we do that? Often we don't just bottle it up, don't we? We don't share. That's right. Sometimes we do. And sometimes we end up feeling um, anxious. Uh, sometimes we're sad, but sometimes we feel relieved. You know, sometimes we... Um, we just forget about it for a while. Sometimes we're laughing still. Sometimes we're feeling panicky. So I'm trying to kind of normalise that all of these things are a really normal experience while we grieve. Um, so yeah. is that the longest part of everybody's grief? I mean, does that take the most out of you? I think it can be... I think we get confused thinking that there's stages of grief. And we've probably all seen that model where there's the stages of grief that you go through. Um, and I think that's kind of been misinterpreted. There's no timeline on it. And I think actually my experience of it and how I've conceptualised it in the book is that initially the grief is something that takes up everything, every space um, in your life. And it feels really sharp and heavy. And over time... Um, life kind of begins to grow around the grief and the edges kind of wear down a little bit. And um, I think that's there's no timeline, there's no set um, stage that you need to go through and everyone's different and it's all okay. So getting through it, what getting do you need to help two? you get through it? Because if you're not, um, if you're a private sort of person, you're not going to share it much with other people possibly and... Um, that, you know, how do you get some advice? Well, by reading Word of Comfort yeah. for a start, of course, <laughs> and looking at what's in this book because what I loved, um, there's a t double page where you've got the leaves of a tree and every leaf has um, uh, just a tiny little phrase that would be helpful and you can you give, you give a lot of extra help in the book, you know, a whole lot of choices and you, you might just find two that relate to you. You might not found any on one page and, and again, it. you're just suggesting we look through it and take what we want out of it. That's it. I, yeah, I've had that, that second chapter of, um, you know, words and different little tools and pieces of advice that might help you. Um, what would you think people? was one of the most important ones? Sometimes I think it's actually just being able to sit with it, sit with the emotion, because we're so uncomfortable with feeling pain, and that's understandable. Um, no one wants to feel that way, and so some of us then suppress it or try to push it away, and you know what we resist persists. And so sometimes the biggest thing you can do, which sounds easy but is very difficult, is just to sit with that emotion for a while. And um, I've popped in a an example of a practice that you can do just with a candle where you light the candle and kind of create a little sacred space around that you light and that's when you just sit with your grief or with whatever emotion that you're feeling really intentionally for a little while um, and then when you're ready you blow the candle out and go on about your day. And then you're through it. Yes, well, oh, well you <laughs> probably no, not completely. There's probably no end of there, but there's the chapter three is called Being Through It and it's sort of about um, the healing or the things that we learn after we've gone through maybe the the worst of 
the heaviness of the grief. Um, so there's little snippets in the last chapter that are kind of little wisdoms and little quotes of things that you, you may just learn along the way. And lots of lovely illustrations. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very heavily illustrated. Um, and I feel that that is a key in helping people digest the message um, but also it makes it feel really accessible and, and it's not threatening. And I know when I was really in the depths of grieving, the last thing I wanted to do was read pages and pages. And, you know, I was desperately kind of wanting something to help me, but I knew I couldn't sit down with a chapter book. No. Um, and so there I, are so thought, many chapter books out there. And um, I don't think many people, they might read a few pages, but it doesn't it doesn't have the same meaning. as The illustrations help you to relate it to yourself. Yeah, that's what I that's what I so hope, um, that people can get Becomes from it. Becomes personal. And that's it. And each page is kind of, um, you know, beautiful on its own. So you could almost just, you want to kind of put little ones in frames or you just leave a page open on your bedside table and it's just your little kind of reminder to come back to, which is really nice. I wanted to cut them all out and put yeah, them <laughs> in a collage kind of yeah. uh, thing With on the, the wall. Um, the second book for cutting. <laughs> yes, another one for cutting. <laughs> so thank you for writing Words of Comfort, Rebecca. You've also, um, I mentioned in the introduction, you've written Note to Self and Note to Self Journal. Tell me a little bit about those too, because they're quite recent too, aren't they? They are. Um, Note to Self was my first book, um, and it's really just about um, more emotions in general. And it, it brings you through different techniques, like breathing techniques and grounding techniques and how to manage your thoughts and things like that. And it sort of leans into the feeling of anxiety more than anything. Um, and then Note to Self Journal followed on. It's really a totally separate, though, different content, but really interactive. So there's lots of um, journal prompts and affirmations and exercises and logs and planners and all sorts of things um, in that one. You need, a, you need a pen out for that one. Well, people like a lot of people like writing journals, don't they? Um, putting things on paper and uh, instead of just putting it on the computer or in an email and it's disappeared yeah. forever, um, you can go back to it. Yeah, it's such a lovely way to um, digest your emotions too. And I've always, I've at times I thought, oh no, I don't really want a journal and I can't be bothered writing. But when you actually do, something different comes out. It's an unusual, like things come out that you don't expect to and you can find resolutions and different kind of, um, you can unpack your emotions differently in that way when you write. Yes, it makes you think a little more deeply, I think. Um, yeah. Not so superficial. That's it. And it, of course, it accesses a different part of the brain than it does when you speak or when you just think. So it actually possibly does provide you with a whole nother tool and a whole nother way of managing your emotions and managing what you're going through. What is the best kind of what what is the kind of work that you like doing most? Uh, do you like working and or is it different for different people, I guess? But you do some interventions and uh, you, you do some coaching. Is that in groups or is it individual? Yeah. Or which do people seem to prefer? What I'm doing at the moment, um, the most that I'm focusing on is a group program. So I run like a six-week um, sort of personal development program. It's all around your self-worth. It's for 
um, limiting beliefs and procrastination and perfectionism and it's um, you know really tackling our inner critics and boundaries and it's a beautiful um, coaching group and that is my absolute favorite thing to do how many um, do you how many would you have in a group we probably have somewhere around 20 people and oh. it's all online so we meet on zoom so we have people from all over the world join us from here in New Zealand and then as far away as Poland and the US and um, so we've got all sorts of women that come together and um, we meet weekly on Zoom and it's just a, like a beautiful, really transformative experience and that's been my my real passion at the moment is doing that. And I'm sure some of those people will keep in touch later. We, we do. We have a club that carries on if people want to continue that mm. connection and that growth and um, so we keep going monthly in a club afterwards. Well, I think um, this is a book for everybody, young and old, and uh, Rebecca um, Bella, who's written it, um, has the most wonderful illustrations to go with the wo- illustrations to go with the words. So, Rebecca, thank you for writing "Words of Comfort: How to Find Hope" and your two earlier books that people probably should look well, want to look at. "Note to Self" and "Note to Self Journal," and uh, it's published by Ellen and Unwin. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. The arresting architecture of Ravenscar House will have intrigued many locals as they watched its progress and then been enticed into exploring what lies inside. Now the story of the benefactors, Jim and Susan Wakefield, the collection and the architect's work has been written in an elegant and informative biography by local arts writer and critic Sally Blundell. Sally, I'm intrigued by the use of the word biography to describe the book. Well, I'm glad you said that because I did ponder over that myself. I've always liked the idea of those books that tell the story of people through a building. So the building itself becomes almost like a character. So Fiona Farrell did that in the villa of, at the edge of empire, and Patchett did it with a Dutch house. And I thought it really suited this house because the way it's been built, and obviously the architecture and the contents, the art collection, all tell a different story. They tell many stories. They tell the story of Jim and Susan Wakefield. They tell the story of their first Christchurch home up on the hill, the first Ravenscar house, and they tell the story of the earthquake. So... I felt that Ravenscar House was a biography of Jim and Susan, but it's also a biography of the building itself. Yes, it's a fascinating um, project, really, as you say, pulling all those um, different elements together in a book and making it so readable and enjoyable. Um, You spent a lot of time with Jim and Susan before they became ill and Jim died, teasing out their actual life stories, didn't you? I did. I met them in 2015 and we were out of our house for earthquake repairs and Jim and Susan had only recently moved to their new house up on Kashmir Hill and the first Ravenscar house was about to be demolished. So it was a starting point. They had this dream to make this new purpose-built house museum in the city They'd had a rough sketch done by Patterson Associates. They hadn't even confirmed for sure the site. So I started talking to them really early on and was able to sort of track the progress backwards into the story of Jim and Susan. 
Yeah, it's uh, because you need to know about them to um, come to understand the collection and then the decision to um, establish a house museum. That's right, and it is unusual. I mean, most house museums take decades, sometimes centuries, to to complete that process from a house to a house museum. And with this, it's very unusual that Jim and Susan would never live there. It was built as a house, but it was promptly became the house museum. So really it was up to the architecture and the contents and this book, really, to tell their story because so many house museums depending on where they are, sit on that spectrum. You know, you often see personal letters or personal objects or some of them almost look as if the owners have just popped out for a cup of tea. So it's this Ravenscar house would never have that. So I think that's what Susan in particular was keen to see with this book, that she was sort of saying, well, the house won't tell our story, the book will. Yes, and it does. Um, because they got together later on in life, and um, you know they were both highly competent, and um, you know had begun and uh, and continued earning substantial, you know, uh, amount of money for their. So they could be collectors on quite a grand scale. Um, and it was interesting to me when um, when they started realising that the point at which the objectives of collecting changed, rather than yes. just being something they started to do and got to enjoy, and when they started realising that this was or could be a collection. Yes, I think that happened actually quite later on. I mean, they started buying art when they were still living in Auckland. Then when they moved sort of retired to Christchurch and started building their dream home in Scarborough, they started buying a lot more art and, and they went on buying a lot of art at that stage as the house was being built and finalised. But I think it was still quite near the end of that process when they began to look at it and say, yes, this is a collection and if we are going to see it as a collection, we want to identify where the gaps are, we want to make sure if we've got a work by one particular artist that is the best work we can have by that particular artist. So that was probably about 10 years, a good 10 years, after they started seriously buying art. Yes, because it, it puts things in a different light, doesn't it, when you, as you say, start looking at the gaps in the collection, looking at the work that you've already got and thinking, no, perhaps we should get um, you know, a better example of that person's work yes. and um, then curating it because I think that I can use that word without <laughs> degrading mm. it <laughs> curating it into a coherent um, collection yeah, body, of, well, body of works yeah and, and she put a, I mean Susan particular put a lot of work into doing that there was a, um, a sort of battered old Medulla folder with ideas written on the um, front and black felt pen and it was just full of art reviews columns uh, letters with to dealers she got advice from John Gao and other art dealers she looked widely and researched I think a lot of them by this stage they had more or less retired and for both of them a lot of the sort of energy and diligence they put into their careers they turned that and applied it to the building of the house and in their choice of artwork. So they, they did do their homework, hugely, 
And they also had this basic rule that they'd never buy anything unless both of them liked it. So I'm not quite sure exactly how many art, potential artworks fell out of the collection based on that criteria, but they did work to have um, works of art that they both loved and that suited the building where they were. Yes, so then making a decision too, um, because as you say, the, the idea that they would establish a house museum mm. preceded the earthquakes, but it was mm. you know, clearly accelerated by the fact that their, their much-loved home up on Scarborough was, was, had to be destroyed. Um, and then, you know, the focus went really on, 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 you know, deciding, as you say, on the architect and, and working out how you could, how you could, you know, get, get that, um, the sense of a house museum in a, in a building that had never been lived in. Because it really does work. It does. And I think that's, you know, a huge testament to the architects and also to the curatorial team and Canterbury Museum and the input from Susan's daughter Frances and sort of echoing, um, I think Andrew Patterson used the word ghosting, the house on the hill while also building something that's completely new, very, very different from the house on the hill and very um, fits in very well with its neighbours, which is an important part of sort of Christchurch's historic cultural scene and educational scene. So I think the way that it has worked is quite extraordinary that it hasn't been a replica at all, but there are all these nods to the house on the hill and sort of the layout of the artwork and references that you can see in this very, very contemporary building. Yes, I found it incredibly helpful to have read your book before I went to okay. see it. <laughs> Yes, well, I'm lucky in that in that respect because you know I I I began with a with a, a certain amount of knowledge about why they bought the pieces or had pieces. You know, I was particularly interested in David Dunley's, um, you know, this extraordinary um, joiner. Really, yes. <laughs> that's what he started off being, furniture maker. Um, English um, that they had um, commissioned a bedroom suite from him and I was quite interested in seeing what it looked like so there's there's so much you know you you do realize how how particular they had been about their choices and so it was really helpful to have read the book before I visited the house good I mean I do wonder what it is like for people visiting the house at first, if you haven't read the book or the story behind it, it, it is quite mysterious. You know, you sort of think, why is this mm. here and, and mm. who are these people? And and I think that's always the magic of house museums around the world, really. And Jim and Susan did visit a lot. You get sort of tantalising ideas and insights into the people who lived there or commissioned it. And you want to know more. And I think that's quite a nice element. It is, it is. And finally, just um, briefly, the whole layout of the book is, is wonderful. I, I like the fact that you've used red a lot, because that was yes. Susan's favourite colour. So yes. the end papers and the, the sort of divisions between the sections in the book. And um, Aaron Bearer was 
largely responsible for that, wasn't he? He was, and the loud and the cover, which I think is stunning. It certainly is. So you must be very proud of of oh. the whole the way the book has has worked out, Sally. I am. I am proud, but I'm also. I really enjoyed the whole project. It was. I learned a lot. It covered so many different fields, and it often new fields for me. And to watch it evolve, and to sort of walk that path as it evolved, I, I felt really privileged actually to be able to do that. Well, thank you. Thank you for for a job very well done, and I can thoroughly recommend the book and the house. The book is called Raven's Car House, a biography. It's by Sally Blundell, and it's published by Canterbury University Press. Thanks, Sally. Thank you. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.